Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. You can't see them, smell them, or taste them, but they're in our waterways, they're in toilet paper, they're in ketchup bottles, and they're often in our bodies and in the bodies of hundreds of animal species across the globe. I'm talking about PFAS, a class of about 14,000 chemicals known as forever chemicals because they don't naturally break down. These chemicals are linked to many serious health problems, including cancer, liver problems, thyroid issues, and birth defects. In Madison, PFAS contamination is responsible for ubiquitous signs along Starkweather Creek and Lake Monona warning about the dangers of fish consumption from these bodies of water. And one Madison drinking water well has been closed due to PFAS contamination. Some estimates show PFAS in the drinking water of more than 200 million Americans. For years, states and municipalities like Madison have been struggling to address PFAS contamination. But last month, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency took the unusual step of setting legal drinking water limits for six of the most studied and toxic PFAS chemicals. Today on A Public Affair, we're going to find out what these new proposed limits mean for Wisconsin communities grappling with PFAS and what action plans are forthcoming on the issue. Here to help us out, we have two expert guests. Jorge Roman Romero is a staff attorney and Equal Justice Works Fellow at Midwest Environmental Advocates. Next week, Jorge will be hosting a webinar entitled National PFAS Drinking Water Regulation. What does EPA's proposed rule mean for Wisconsin? That'll take place on Friday, April 14th at noon. Welcome to A Public Affair, Jorge. Thank you for having me here. Excited to talk about what these federal developments mean for Wisconsin. And thanks for joining us, Jorge. And Scott Lasser is the Water Program Director at Clean Wisconsin, where he leads the organization's efforts to address agricultural pollution of Wisconsin's water resources. Welcome to A Public Affair, Scott. Thanks, Douglas. Looking forward to the conversation. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. This is your chance to ask a question to some very knowledgeable folks about PFAS or the new EPA regulations. Please give us a call with your questions at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, Scott, we're going to start with you today. Um, just to give us a little bit of an overview of what PFAS are and where they come from for folks who might not know about these chemicals. Absolutely. And, you know, Douglas, you really did a, a good job in the intro sort of laying out the basics. So uh, PFAS stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. As you alluded to, this is a class of thousands of manufactured compounds that are used in everything from firefighting foam to nonstick cookware to food packaging to clothing to stain repellents um, to, to waterproofing materials like Gore-Tex. So they are everywhere. They're used in a lot of products. Unfortunately, all of us probably have them in our bodies as well because, as you alluded to, they are often forever chemicals. They don't break down in the environment. Mother Nature doesn't have good ways of destroying them. We don't have good ways of destroying them right now. Wisconsin is shipping um, PFAS-containing firefighting foam to Alabama to store it in a concrete bunker because we don't know that we can incinerate it um, or break it down with chemical processes. There's a lot of good work going into that field right now, and there are some promising opportunities on the horizon. But the bottom line is that when we create this stuff, it's often here to stay. Um, and we are seeing that manifest itself in the increasing incidence of drinking water contamination and surface water contamination across Wisconsin and across the nation. And the concentrations that we are seeing uh, in some of these waters are astronomical, thousands of parts per trillion um, when EPA's proposed drinking water standard is at four parts per trillion. I want to lay out for people what that means. So picture, if you will, a football field. It's 100 yards long and a little over 50 yards wide. Now picture that football field 
filled with 40 feet of water. That's almost up to the top of the goalpost, right? Okay, so we got a football field of water 40 feet tall. What EPA said is four drops, four drops of PFOA or PFOS in that volume of water is the standard. Five drops and that water is no longer safe to drink. So we are talking about extremely small quantities of this pollution contaminating huge volumes of water. That was a really helpful illustration, Scott, for us to think about just um, how dangerous these chemicals are and why they need to be restricted. Tell us more about the effects of those small concentrations of PFAS. What do we know about how PFAS harm people and animals? Sure. So PFAS can have a a host of impacts. Um, They bioaccumulate. So one of the challenges with PFAS in our surface waters, for example, is that fish can concentrate them. So there are a lot of communities in Wisconsin that rely on fish as a major protein source, including folks that used to fish in Starkweather Creek. And unfortunately, probably some of them still do because they aren't familiar with the risks that PFAS poses. But when PFAS is in water bodies like Starkweather Creek, the fish concentrate it and then they basically give people who eat it an enhanced dose. So we see um, increasing risks of certain cancers. We see the disruption of hormone function in the body. We see potential interference with vaccine efficacy. And as is, with the, as is the case with many um, incidences of chemical exposure, we often see these risks multiplied or enhanced when you're talking about women that are pregnant or young children, just because the bodies are more sensitive to the impacts of these chemicals. So plenty of public health evidence and reason to be concerned about exposure. Jorge, we're going to turn to you now to tell us a little bit more about these new EPA limits that Scott just mentioned, these limits on PFAS and drinking water specifically and how they may be implemented. Yeah, absolutely. So just to set a little bit more context on how the standard development process works uh, in the Safe Drinking Water Act. So first, the EPA, which is the agency charged with uh, developing these standards for uh, in benefit of public health, they first conduct uh, a risk assessment where they analyze, um, based on avail- data already available to the agency, they analyze what will be uh, the public health goal, um, what, what will be the, the health-based number where we can show that uh, the ma- a maximum level of a contaminant in drinking water at which no known or anticipated adverse effects on the health of person would occur with uh, adequate margin of safety. So for PFOS and PFOA, which is two of the PFAS that have been most studied, the EPA found just similar to um, what Scott was mentioning about the relationship with cancer uh, adverse effects. For these two substances, exposure via drinking water, the EPA determined that these substances are likely to be carcinogenic. And when that happens, the agency has a long standing practice of setting this health based goal at zero. Um, So, and that is sort of like the first stage or the first phase of the standard development process. Then the agency is charged to add into that uh, health based factor some cost and technological considerations so that they can actually set a maximum level, um, maximum contaminant level that would be enforceable nationwide. And for that, the EPA said that at four parts per trillion, like Scott um, just mentioned. Why was set at four parts per trillion? Really because the EPA found that um, the level at which uh, current technology can detect concentration of these substances uh, with reasonable certainty is four parts per trillion. And so, and that's why uh, they elevated that health-based number to four parts per trillion so that the nationwide regulation will be feasible to attain by water systems. So uh, that is sort of uh, what's happening with these two substances, PFOA and PFOS. Um, I think one of the most, the main takeaways talking about adverse health effects is that they are considered to be likely to be carcinogenic, uh, which is a new classification uh, that EPA has uh, provided and published. And so, like Scott was saying, these substances are really, really concerning, even on extremely low levels, essentially no levels 
is uh, safe. So it is definitely a problem that water utilities will have to confront. So we're talking about chemicals that have no known safe level of exposure, and the EPA has decided to do something about it. That sounds like a good thing. Of course, there are going to be bureaucratic obstacles, right? And um, Jorge, uh, it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about what some of the obstacles the EPA may confront are in implementing these new regulations. What's the roadmap for rolling this out? Yeah, good question. So once uh, once uh, the rulemaking process finishes, uh, which they anticipate uh finishing this particular rulemaking by the end of this year once that uh, rule is final and if there is no litigation which i wouldn't take that out of the picture necessarily um the effective date of the regulation is three years so three years after promulgation of that rule um you uh you have water utilities have to uh comply with the requirements stemming from the Safe Drinking Water Act. Of course, there is a process for where uh, Wisconsin in this particular case um, will have to adapt its uh, code to meet those federal requirements. And for that, you have an initial period of two years, but you can seek an extension of two other years, additional years. So it's possible that Wisconsin may have up to four years to comply with the federal requirements um, and then therefore water utilities will be subject to, to, to the Safe Drinking Water Act requirements. So that is the timeline, give or less, taking litigation out of, out of the equation. We'll follow up a little bit more about litigation in a moment and, and that timeline and how these new standards compare to Wisconsin standards. But first, I want to reintroduce you both. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Jorge Roman Romero, staff attorney with Midwest Environmental Advocates, and Scott Lasser, water program director at Clean Wisconsin. We're talking about PFAS and new U.S. Environmental Protection Agency regulations limiting the amount of PFAS in drinking water. If you have questions, please do give us a call at 608 256 2001 extension 9 you can also reach out to us on twitter or facebook so i'm going to turn it back to you scott and and ask first of all what's your take on the strengths and weaknesses of these new regulations coming out from the epa well i think overall epa um really did a, a great job with these with these proposed regulations and i think in the you know public health environmental community they've been met with with broad support you know we can we can talk about three versus four versus five par- parts per trillion uh, or six or seven or eight, as Jorge alluded to, at the end of the day, we don't want this stuff in our bodies. Um, and we want to get, we want to keep it out of our bodies whenever possible. Now, I've heard some indications from water utilities in Wisconsin that are already dealing with um, PFAS like Wausau and Madison, that um, they weren't surprised that standards of this level were coming and that the, you know, the wheels are in motion to meet these standards. And uh, as Jorge alluded to, this is going to play out over the next few years. You know, we hope that that Wisconsin um, acts quickly and decisively on this front. There's there's no reason to wait. Um, when Wisconsin put forward standards for these chemicals last year, uh, DHS and DNR proposed at 20. Uh, the Natural Resources Board somewhat arbitrarily reached backwards and said 70. Anybody who was looking at the science at the time very clearly saw the writing on the wall and knew that something like this from EPA was coming because it was needed, especially with these two compounds that we know so well uh, pose these health risks. So there's no reason to wait. Um, And I think you're going to see water utilities recognize this number and move forward despite the fact that it's going to take a few years for it to to play out. so we're really pleased with EPA's action. This is an example of how the science and understanding of risks that chemicals pose evolve over time. EPA had higher recommendations or advisories in the past, but we've just learned a lot more about the risks these chemicals pose, even at extremely low convers- concentrations. And so it was important to make an emphatic declaration of those risks, and, and EPA did that. 
Jorge, would you like to add anything about strengths and weaknesses of the new regulations from your perspective and perhaps especially from a legal perspective? Certainly. Um, I think one uh, noble approach that EPA took, uh, I believe, to try to be conservative, conservative but also uh, decisively regulate some substances, is the approach they took to regulate four substances as a mixture using the hazard index approach. So as we've been talking about, EPA proposed to regulate PFOS and PFOA, based on um, animal studies and also epidemiological studies. But for the other four, other four substances, they are not necessarily putting a, a maximum, they're not proposing a maximum contaminant level uh, individually. So they're trying to regulate that as a mixture. So when water systems find uh, two or more of these substances in the water, system, they plug that information into an equation called the hazard index, and that determines whether or not the water utility has a problem and whether they need to take action. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about the hazard index approach, um, but I think based on, on the information that they had using this hazard index, I think could be considered strength. Um, most of the underlying studies for these four substances are are animal studies for a good reason. And so um, I think EPA using this approach to sort of weigh public health risks uh, for multiple substances, I think will uh, lead to less pushback by certain actors, um, even though as we may talk later, actors are going to try to find ways to like weaken these uh, limitations. But I think the hazard index approach is a strength of, of this proposed regulation. Thank you, Jorge. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. Um, Don, you're on a public affair with a question about uh, filtration systems, correct? Yes, um, home filtration. And thank you. I, I, I love this program. Uh, it's very important. I live in one of the areas or in the area in Madison where our well was shut down. And I love the science behind it. Thank you, Jorge, for that. But And this might be outside of the scope of this conversation, but does anybody know about home filtration systems that can take out PFAS? And it might be too early in all this investigation, but just curious. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question, Dawn. I'll turn it to either of you. Any thoughts? Sure, I can uh, I can kick it off. So uh, there are some home filtrations, home filtration systems that can help remove PFAS. Now, um, whether they get all of it out or how much they get out is is a little bit of an open question. But even a simple so uh, granulator granulated ac granular activated carbon or GAC is a, a common home filtration technology. Brita pitchers, pure pitchers. Um, that is one of the technologies that can be used at scale to remove PFAS. So those some of those basic home filters that are used can help remove uh, PFAS contamination. Now, again, the only way to know, um, you know, how well your particular filter is doing would be to test your water before and after it's it's been filtered. There's a lot of work going on in the field to understand how effective those those filtration technologies are, um, and we're going to see things like granular activated carbon filters installed at a utility scale in communities where they detect um, PFAS contamination. So um, my understanding, and, and I believe you could, you know, you mentioned that you're in Madison, you can check this um, publicly on, on Madison's uh, water utilities database is that having shut down the well that was contaminated with PFAS, uh, Madison's water is currently below the proposed EPA standards. So they're, they've, they've been one of the communities that's been a leader on this. They've been on top of it. They recognize um, some of the risks. They said positive things about EPA's standards. Um, so I, you know, I, I drink the water in Madison when I'm at work. I don't, I don't live in Madison, um, but I do drink the water. Another layer of security can be adding some of those basic home filtration systems. They don't work for everything. But there is some evidence they do work for some PFAS compounds. Mm -hmm. One question that's related to this, um, Scott and Jorge, that people might have is if the Madison Water Utility 
has has measured um, PFAS levels below these new proposed EPA guidelines in the drinking water, um, how can we be sure that surface water is somehow not contaminating the drinking water? What's the relationship between surface water and drinking water? Because we know this in the surface water, it's there, right, in high levels. Absolutely. And, you know, it really it depends on the depth uh, that the wells draw from. And so uh, even when communities like Madison, you know, establish that their water present day is safe to drink, they will be required to continue to engage in periodic testing because, the PFAS contaminants from the surface can filter down over time. But, you know, realistically, shallower um, aquifers, water sources are, are more at risk of surface water contamination. So if you look around Marinette uh, up in that area, the town of Peshtigo, uh, the private well owners up there are really suffering from PFAS contamination because they have shallow private wells that are, they are using to draw their drinking water. And seeing extremely high concentrations of PFAS. Madison didn't see those type of concentrations in its well because those wells are much, much deeper. And so they are generally better protected um, by the geology in that depth. But we also see that PFAS contamination can get that far. So we can't get complacent um, and expect that deeper wells are somehow going to magically keep us safe. We need we really need and we have seen as a consequence of Wisconsin enacting drinking water standards last year, um, extensive testing to understand the full scale and, and scope of this problem in Wisconsin. And we're seeing testing um, rapidly scale up and, and that will give us a better picture of um, where it's a problem in the state and what communities are going to be you know, faced with uh, addressing it. We have uh, another caller on the line now. Wally, uh, you are on a public affair. Hello. Hey, so my question is, as a fellow that can see the stark weather from my house above the plume, what can we do about this with uh, bacteria or fungal remediation? Thank you. So Wally's asking about biological so solutions to addressing PFAS contamination. It sounds like particularly in surface water. Uh, are there biological remediation solutions out there? Uh, either one of you could speak to this. Uh, I can go. Okay. I'll, I'll go be ahead, brief. Scott, yeah. uh, and then, Jorge, I, I want to give you a chance if you've got anything to add. Though they are a possibility, um, and I know that um, Truax has been experimenting with them, and they have seen some indication that they could work. It's still early to know how definitively those biological uh, remediation um, strategies could, could work. So I think the long story short on this is stay tuned, but there's some good work going on uh, in that realm. I do want to circle back, though, on that point, and it's a, a good question, Wally, and it's a reminder that... Um, Addressing PFAS contamination is not just about cleaning up the messes we've already made. It's about stopping making more messes. And so a, a huge part of this conversation is not just standards and testing and remediation. It's what are we doing to reduce our use of PFAS so we don't cre keep creating more messes to clean up, especially when we don't have scalable, effective technologies to break down or destroy these compounds. And so a, a really important part of the conversation going forward has to be what are we using this stuff in and what can we take it out of? Do we really need the cheese on our butter burgers and Big Macs not to stick to the wrapper and we want to expose ourselves to these compounds and put them in that wrapper just so the cheese is a little less sticky? Personal opinion? No. Uh, and there are the reality is there are a lot of good alternatives in a lot of good circumstances to stop using these compounds. Uh, and that is a huge focus of Clean Wisconsin's work sort of now and, and going forward and needs to increasingly be a bigger part of the conversation around how we address the public health concerns around PFAS. You're referring there to fast food wrappers and containers, right? Which uh, a number of recent studies have shown have high levels of PFAS. Yes. Right? Yeah. Food, water, and dust are the three primary exposure pathways for PFAS, with food being the biggest one. It either gets in our food supply where that food is grown or produced, or it gets in it through the packaging. 
So based on the evidence, this is a natural and critical area in which to start uh, addressing this. Jorge, I'm going to turn it back to you to jump in with whatever is coming to mind with the many uh, different angles we're taking on the issue right now. Yeah, indeed. I think what uh, uh, Scott brought up is a really important part of the conversation that takes us out, uh, you know, uh, out of a little bit out of focus just to see the general problem with how we uh, address uh, chemical regulations. And essentially, uh, in the case of PFAS, there are, like you mentioned, uh, Douglas, about roughly 14,000 of them. And we are just trying to regulate nationwide in drinking water systems only six. And it, from the, from where we started producing these chemicals in the 1940s, it's uh, getting close to, um, to 100 years of production and we're just trying to address this. And so, you know, part of the problem is that in this type of regulation, uh, there is a presumption that they're safe until proven otherwise uh, without taking any precautionary uh, principle in mind uh, when we address these substances. So uh, it, it is problematic that we don't attempt to first try to phase them out of production just because there are there is no data on some on, on many of them and so that's one part of the problem the other one is uh whether we should start regulating them as a class because they all share uh the chemical properties uh that are very very similar they have similar characteristics so there's no really a good reason why uh to treat them separately and regulate them piece by piece, uh, just because for some of the substances, we just don't have data yet, even though we know they have the same similar chemical properties and same characteristics, like bioaccumulative, they tend to be bioaccumulative. They, uh, many of them act through the same pathways. And so, you know, generally speaking, I think we need to reconceptualize how we re regulate chemicals uh, just to be able to be more efficient uh, for, you know, to, to address that for public health matters. That's such a great point. Uh, I'd like to, to dive into that a little more. But uh, first, I want to remind listeners that you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Jorge Roman Romero staff attorney with Midwest Environmental Advocates, and Scott Lasser, Water Program Director at Clean Wisconsin. If you'd like to join our conversation, get your questions answered about PFAS and water in Wisconsin and around the world, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out on Twitter or Facebook. We have another caller on the line. Rebecca, you are on A Public Affair. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a Southside Madison resident, and I found out this weekend in regards to the Park Street fire that happened on Friday night that there aren't any water-specific emergency services in the event of a large-scale um, spill or incident. Um, so in this case, it was a it was a fire that involved lots and lots of vehicles, pallets full of tires, lots of chemicals. And this is a block away from Winger Creek and a mile away from Lake Monona, um, with Winger Creek being the connector. Um, the water utility told me over the weekend that the fire department is the only, um, you know, intervention available to manage the water that they are using um, in, a, in an event like this. And when I looked at what they were doing to prevent all of this um, mess from going directly into our lakes. Uh, they had one small berm on a culvert uh, a block from the fire, and that was it. So I'm wondering, um, is there anything in the works yet or possibly already in existence where there's organizations where there's like an emergency crew that could get called to an event such as this to, you know, as, as um, I forget if Jorge or Scott were the ones saying it just a moment ago about preventing these messes from occurring in the first place rather than waiting until they're there to mitigate. Thank you. Uh, I just want to try to clarify your question a little bit, Rebecca. Are you still there? Yes. Um, 
so are you concerned in particular about the the firefighting foam and the PFAS content of the firefighting foam being sprayed sort of on the street and then washing into waterways? Is that the just the, the focus of your question? I'm not sure if or how much foam was used in this particular fire, but um, and I, I don't know if I, I assume that there's PFAS related to the materials that were all burned. It was in an industrial oh, right. area. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess I, it, it might be a little bit vague and maybe not directly connected to the PFAS as much in that regard. But just speaking to emergency water uh, protection services, you know, sure. maybe not leaving that up to the fire department because their priority is obviously the fire and not necessarily the, the product that they use on the fire. Yep. Okay. Um, so, so both maybe the waste fires are being put out, but also the um, the waste, so to speak, that is left after putting out a fire. What's happening with that, and how should it be addressed? Um, right, and the fact that there's not an immediate crew of people and a and a system to address that immediately, rather than after the tests have come through, et cetera. Right. Thank you very much for calling in with that great question, Rebecca. Scott, would you like to speak to that? Sure. Um, I I think my answer is probably going to be a little bit unsatisfying for Rebecca, but it's a really good uh, question and a good set of questions. And I, you know, I'm not, I can't speak to um, the city of Madison and the resources that they have associated with both putting out the fire and cleaning it up. But she raises some really good points about potential pathways of of contamination. Um, I can speak on the firefighting foam front. So there has been a lot of work in Wisconsin in the last um, couple of years to restrict training using PFAS containing firefighting foam um, to collect existing PFAS containing firefighting foam and for fire departments to um, procure PFAS free alternatives. I can't speak again to the specifics of where the city of Madison is at on that front, but that is an active area that many fire departments are are looking into uh, and, and taking steps on. But, you know, you raise a you raise a, a broader point about um, when we have emergencies like this, the whole scope of things that we are doing to deal with both the immediate threat and and the aftermath. And um, unfortunately, all I can do is validate that you raised some really good questions and I can't speak to any of the specific resources or, or steps underway out there um, to address that scope of concerns. It may be the case that you know some communities uh, are trying to take those steps, but it's it's something that we should continue to look at and talk about uh, in an effort to prevent some of this contamination from getting into our water in the first place. So there are, in fact, um, PFAS-free firefighting foams available now widely on the market. Yes. yes. Um, okay. I, I can't, again, I don't know the specifics around them, but I know that uh, fire departments are procuring those foams and that there have been additional um, requirements in terms of cleanup around things like training. you not allowed to train with um, PFAS containing firefighting foams anymore unless you you contain that and um, dispose of it. And a lot of the contamination that we've seen uh, across Wisconsin, in Marinette, in Madison, um, around other airports is a consequence of training and actual fires at those facilities. But the you know, the facility up in uh, Tyco had a lot to do with training and testing of, of those foams. And so it's an important step um, to take that to take PFAS release out of the equation in those circumstances. Jorge, I'll turn to you to add anything here at this juncture. Just briefly, uh, definitely there's been some progress in that uh, realm in Wisconsin. However, just uh, one particular point that I wanted to highlight is that when the this administration's DNR attempted to uh, limit the discharges of PFAS uh, containing firefighting foam, uh, it was met by some uh, lobby groups uh, with resistance a little bit. So they weakened that regulation to create a little bit of vagueness into how they uh, actually are able to dispose that under the law. So essentially they pass a, sort of like a, a, a ban uh, on le- with a one particular exception. And that exemption uh, was in the works to have some metrics of what technology they can use for them to be able to dispose that uh, uh, that uh, PFAS containing firefighting foam. However, some lobby groups were fortunate uh, were successful in, in removing those metrics. So right now we don't it, it, the regulation is a little vague whether you meet that exception or not. So it it, it can be considered as a loophole 
Um, and that that may be uh, something that, you know, further administrations can look into it, whether that loophole is uh, creating much of a problem uh, in that regulatory framework. But that, that was just a, a little bit of nuance that I wanted to, and, and some of the dynamics at play uh, when we talk about PFAS regulation. While we're there talking about uh, the complexities of regulation, Jorge, let's stay with you and have you talk a little bit about what you alluded to earlier, the possibility of litigation of the uh, over the EPA guidelines, the new EPA guidelines restricting um, PFAS in drinking water. What do you see on the horizon and, and what are the prospects that um, the regulations will stick as they are and survive any possible litigation? Sure, we can start by addressing the proposed regulation for PFOS and PFOA. Uh, again, the health-based goal was zero parts per trillion, indicating no level is really safe with an adequate margin of safety. Um, and But they established it at four parts per trillion due to technological uh, considerations mainly. And so here, the Safe Drinking Water Act contains language in the provisions that talk about cost. And so I anticipate certain groups to try to make the claim that that four parts per trillion should be even weakened so that we should have a higher uh, level based on cost consideration. So I can see some groups saying that based on cost, that the Safe Drinking Water Act demands you to take into consideration when you establish these, you need to uh, elevate those numbers. Um, I don't anticipate they will go after the like the technological considerations. I would think they will just say, hey, the economic analysis is flawed. You should elevate this higher up because this is a burden to water utilities and the public in general and you didn't really take into account that number. So the fight there would potentially be uh, whether we stay with four parts per trillion or whether we need to elevate that. Um, another component, uh, sometimes going after the scientific foundations for these uh, standards can be tough, but when EPA published health advisory levels in June of 2022, which were non-enforceable, we saw the American uh, Chemistry uh, Council uh, filing a lawsuit uh, against those health advisories for a variety of reasons, going after the scientific foundation of those health advisories that were not enforceable. These were talking about enforceable levels nationwide, um, set at relatively low levels. And so I can see uh, groups like that also trying to um, shade a little bit of doubt uh, or cast a little bit of doubt into the scientific foundation of, the, of those numbers. So it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the litigation you anticipate is primarily around industry trying to maybe increase the levels that they have to regulate for, um, but maybe you expect the, the regulation as a whole to survive, more or less? Uh, it, I think it's hard for me to say, but sure. uh, based on what I see and based on what e how EPA defends uh, it, its its uh, decision making, they just they they're entitled to a great deal of deference as long as they're able to uh, express and put in writing a reasonable basis for. Them. I think they they have and they have plenty of evidence to support this rulemaking. So I think the rulemaking will end up being promulgated if the EPA goes and takes those extra steps to justify its decisions. Uh, but we'll see whether they're uh, able to be successful uh, at the levels they, they want it to be. Um, and despite of who succeeds in the merits, sometimes litigation uh, just post, uh, postpones the effective date of a particular regulation and, and just retards the entire process generally. Uh, as far as actors in that litigation, it's hard to say because like the the uh, entities that are strictly going to be regulated here are water utilities. So uh, yeah, I can see the American uh, Chemistry Council definitely having uh, an interest here, but they're because they're not directly 
regulated or, or the groups they represent, um, I'm, I'm curious and wonder whether what, what are utilities, what position they're going to take overall uh, and how American Chemistry Council will align or not with, with that position. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks. That, that was really helpful. Um, we have a comment question from Bob. It's also about another technique for remediation, I believe. Go ahead, Bob. You're on a public affair. Uh, hi. Yeah, I read about some geniuses in Australia who are putting magnetic particles into the water, and they bind very easily, apparently, with the PFAS um, particles, and they send on a magnet and pull it out. And it, it, they say it just works surprisingly well. So I don't know if you know anything about that, but sounds like a promising uh, development. We should, we should spend more time perfecting these technologies before we put this stuff in our environment and our bodies. Um, and the reason we're seeing this innovation and evolution is because there's a sort of perceived and real demand for it. It's unfortunate that um, it didn't keep pace with the use and deployment of these chemicals. I'm not familiar with that one in particular. I am cautiously optimistic that we will see some technologies come out in the coming years that can allow us to better manage and destroy these compounds. But you know, let's remember that part of part of the magic of PFAS is that they are forever chemicals, that they are difficult to break down, and that has imparted some of the benefits that you know they result in when they're used in certain products. But we are now becoming much more aware of the consequences of those. And unfortunately, um, our approach to chemical regulation and use in the United States is often use now, ask questions later. Uh, and this is only the latest case of, of that uh, attitude and approach playing out. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Scott Lasser, Water Program Director at Clean Wisconsin, and Jorge Roman Romero, Staff Attorney with Midwest Environmental Advocates. We're talking about PFAS and new EPA guidelines restricting PFAS in drinking water. There's still time to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, with your questions about the issue of PFAS. So I'm going to pick up right where you left off, Scott and Jorge, you've alluded to this as well, the precautionary principle and the idea that maybe we shouldn't be introducing new chemicals until we fully understand their effects uh, in the environment and in our own bodies and in other animals' bodies as well. Um, this is more of a big picture question, I guess. Where do you see, do you see progress in, um, the precautionary principle beginning to influence the way we approach introducing chemicals? I think in the realm of PFAS, there have been, um, some notable announcements. I've heard the paper industry in Wisconsin discuss phasing out all PFAS use in the next couple of years. Um, 3M. Minnesota-based company that has manufactured a lot of PFAS over the decades announced that they were phasing out manufacture of PFAS. Um, if they are, in fact, ceasing manufacture of this whole class of compounds, right? We're talking about thousands, not just a portion of those compounds. Those are really important steps, if not explicitly recognizing the precautionary principle, at least putting it to, into practice in, in some cases. More broadly speaking, you know, we when we do regulate chemicals in the U.S., and this is often the case elsewhere, we do it on an individual basis. Um, and we really, you know, it, it takes us a while to get insight into the health risks that any one chemical poses. We know even less about what they can pose in combination. And so, you know, it might be multiple PFAS compounds. It might be a PFAS compounds and metals. It might be PFAS compounds and pesticides. It might be metals and pesticides. We don't, obviously you can go down infinite exposure paths, but what we have assumed as, as you alluded to is that, you know, unless we have concrete, explicit, incontrovertible evidence that this stuff poses health risks, that it's going to be okay. And we, we as a, a community um, have, as a society have suffered some consequences for that lead was widely deployed in um, you know various technologies gasoline paint etc 
and the industry argued it wasn't that bad. And then they were like, well, it's not quite that bad. And, you know, we saw this sort of ratcheting down of standards until we now have a recognition that no lead is good. You don't want any lead in your body or, or your kids' bodies. And we've seen that pattern play out with PFAS as well. EPA had a 200 part per trillion advisory and then they had a 70 part per trillion advisory. And now we're at four parts per trillion for these individual compounds. And Part of that is the process of science and getting a better understanding of um, the risks that these chemicals pose. I don't know that we can fully vet every chemical before we put it into use, but there's certainly a space between what we're doing now, which often uses a lot of us as, as exposure guinea pigs, um, and a, a sort of full implementation of the precautionary principle. And I think we really have to push towards finding a middle ground where we have a better understanding of the health risks posed by the inordinate number of chemicals that we use in our society um, before we widely deploy them. Jorge. Indeed, I, uh, at the federal level, there was a, a little bit of, of progress, at least on paper. So in 2016, there was uh, the Toxic Substance, uh, Substances and Control Act was amended to include what now is section five of the statute and that uh, authorizes the epa to require a 90-day review process of new chemicals that want to enter the market and enter commerce um, or whenever uh, some chemicals want to be given a new use or application and uh, so epa uh, is authorized to uh, requires those to to go through a 90-day review process where they determine the health risk that they these may uh, present, which that could be a good operationalization uh, of the precautionary principle. However, there are currently there are some loopholes there that are actually playing out in real time with respect to some uses of PFAS. And so I know I've been in conversations with some attorneys trying to fight back those uh, those loopholes that allowed uh, these limited mechanism to operationalize the precautionary principle and render it ineffective completely like it, it is not even there um, again i do think like scott alluded to we need to build on this at the federal level at the state level and find that really common ground that allows for us to just be more mindful of what we introduce into the market irrespective of its potential commercial value uh, and, 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 and be more mindful to public health and the environment generally. We have just enough time to build on that by talking about what each of your organizations are doing in regards to this issue, both uh, promoting regulation and more broadly raising awareness in the ways both of you have been so eloquently doing this hour, talking about how not only do we need regulations for chemicals like PFAS, but we need to rethink our relationship to them and how we use them in our society. So um, tell us first, Scott, about uh, your work at Clean Wisconsin and anything you want listeners to know about how they can help support the organization's efforts as well. Absolutely. Um, there's a really important uh, negotiation that's going to happen in the next few months around the state's biennial budget. Uh, and the governor put forward a, a pretty expansive proposal in his proposed budget to address PFAS contamination. Uh, resources to help communities impacted by PFAS pollution, some additional staff positions at the DNR that are, are really needed so that they can better help and support communities, um, additional testing resources for municipalities as well as the one-third of Wisconsin families that rely on private wells. We have a very limited uh, window into the extent of, of contamination of private wells, and we need to do more, more testing in that arena to understand where contamination exists. Uh, and some other, you know, efforts to set up additional standards to continue to remove uh, PFAS containing firefighting from from use and from the environment. So a really straightforward um, but bold uh, set of steps to to help the state pair the steps that the federal government has taken in the last couple of years, primarily through the bipartisan infrastructure law to put resources on the table for communities to address PFAS contamination. And so I would encourage folks to to um, reach out to their elected representatives to let them know that uh, investing in communities that are impacted by PFAS is, is important. And there's a real opportunity to do that in the budget. I'll circle back to what I talked about earlier. We need to clean up the messes we've already made, but we need to stop making messes going forward. So a real point of focus for us in the coming months will be 
on working with interested lawmakers to try to start to remove these compounds from certain products. And food packaging, I think, is a, a really logical place to start um, because food is, is the main pathway for exposure um, because food packaging widely is, is widely known to contain PFAS and because there are good alternatives. There's a Wisconsin company that manufactures PFAS-free food packaging. So um, there, other states have done some really good work looking at whether it's pizza boxes or plastic clamshells or you know cardboard carryout containers, which of those whole suite of um, products have good alternatives that are are PFAS free? And so we're really going to be digging into that um, in the in the coming months. But PFAS are in in cosmetics again. They're in the food packaging. They're in children's products. They're in clothing. And so I think just elevating the conversation around reducing our use of these products whenever we can is a, a really uh, critical step in helping reduce the public health risks that PFAS poses and will be a point of focus for Clean Wisconsin in the months ahead. And, you know, if listeners are interested in the work we're doing, cleanwisconsin.org is our website, and we've got a lot of great information about our PFAS work there. Thank you, Scott. And uh, Jorge, uh, we've got about a minute for you to tell us about uh, Midwest Environmental Advocates and your work related to PFAS, and I know you have a webinar you wanted to tell folks about. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be presenting on Friday, April 14 at noon, um, a webinar essentially on uh, covering a little bit more in depth these uh, EPA's proposed rule and what the timeline will be for the rulemaking for Wisconsin to be able to uh, comply with that rule when effective uh, and what essentially those, uh, what that proposed rule means for Wisconsin in general um, is we are working on a variety of advocacy efforts here. And one includes uh, state groundwater standards because uh, it is important to know that EPA's rulemaking really applies to municipal water systems. So for people in private wells, uh, this is this not apply to them, but uh, the state groundwater law absolutely makes reference to EPA's uh, values that they can use to set standards, enforceable standards. So that's something that we are working on and how DNR can use the federal data that we have to try to protect private well owners. Um, there is the polling notification policy, we believe BNR has the authority to require water systems to notify um, the public when there's an exceedance of those health-based values um, that come out from the proposed regulation. And so we are also working on how to provide resources to communities and how uh, they are able to advocate before water systems for action. That's great. Um, Jorge, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to jump in here because we're out of time. And I just wanted to remind folks who you are. Uh, that was Jorge Roman Romero, staff attorney with Midwest Environmental Advocates. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jorge. Absolutely. Glad and, to be here. Uh, we also had Scott Lasser from Clean Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us, Scott. You bet. Thanks, Douglas. And I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. And I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and support.